You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a New Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Liam Maloney entitled The Earl of Orrery and the Defence of the Protestant Interest in the Settlement of Ireland. For I have often deplored that by my birth or my fortunes should cast me into an age or a country where a man cannot live more like the sons of one father, the subjects of one prince, the servants of one god, than I see we are the like to do. Perhaps Roger Boyle, the first Earl of Orrery, a man of verse, was more pleased by the literary qualities of this, his statement, than by its semantic values. For what would Lord Ari have done with his life in a land of such concord and fraternity? Like many courtiers and politicians in the mid-17th century, Ari is seen to thrive in reconciling conflicting parties or maintaining deep hostilities. The restoration of the royal regime in 1660 meant another round of a prolonged anxious settlement of the necessary pillars of the early modern state, land ownership and the parameters of the state church. Ari had little hand in the revitalisation of the Restoration Church of Ireland, except to characteristically go with the winning party. So for more on that, I would suggest the wonderful James McGuire's articles. As for the land, Ormond said that at the time of the Restoration, it was, for the most part, the possession of such as one or other had been engaged against the King's interests. The issues lay in the need to reward those who set Charles II's return in motion, those who proved facilitating his patient or otherwise co-exiles, and those who had been innocent of all crimes but had land confiscated by the Cromwellian settlement in any case. The need to accommodate the returning royalists and readmit the King's supporters to the political landowning world was to be the cause of administrative headaches. Copious divisions made the Irish settlement a pain, as the 49 officers, the Venturers Act subscribers, innocent Catholics and Cromwellian soldiers all claimed their rights arrears, loyalties and grants. Ormond's pithy comment uh, of needing to find another Ireland to satisfy all claimants sufficiently sums up the situation. The management of one's contemporary image and historical legacy was of significance to even those who prospered following the Restoration. The quarrel of the 1680s between the Earl of Castlehaven, the Earl of Anglesey and the Duke of Ormond in printed histories concerning the 1640s showed there was an accepted silence post-restoration beneath which divisions and mistrust of fellow peers and politicians inconspicuously hid, and work by Michael Percival Maxwell examined the origins of this debate. Though consciousness of his own image among his contemporaries and of his legacy, Ari was often dismissed and despised as a charlatan and a weather vane. However, Ari's chaplain, Thomas Morris, portrayed his master as a consistent supporter of the Stuart regime throughout the 1650s, despite his Cromwellian cooperation. The first readers of Morris's memoirs may have found it nonsensical or even hilarious. However, it may, not, it may have been unwise to highlight anyone else's spin stories just in case one's own skeletons, perhaps even that um, the headless one of an anointed sovereign was to be pointed out by one's enemies as it clumsily fell out of one's closet. In the crucial period between the proclaiming of Charles II as King by the General Convention of Ireland in May 1660 and the passing of the Bill of Settlement in December 1665, Ari emerged as a spokesman for the new English interest in Ireland, in Ari's own words, by which I mean such as came over since 1649. 
He built up an image of himself as leader and pacifier of this grouping's fears and portrayed himself as their voice of unending gratitude to Ormond and loyalty to the king's government. In this way, Arwy created an indispensable position for himself in relation to the land settlement debates, in which his goal was to maintain the profile of the Gumrelian settlement to as large a degree as possible. Despite Arwy's position as one of three Lords Justice from the beginning of 1661, he was in a transitory position. The king intended to appoint a Lord the Lieutenant to govern Ireland, displaying the power and grandeur of the monarchy. When the Duke of Ormond emerged as a likely candidate, not even the death of one of Arwy's fellow Lords Justice, the Earl of Mount Rath, meant that his increased power would last very long. Arwy's ambitions for the Lord Lieutenancy aside, he repositioned himself as a self-appointed spokesman for the new English interest and the conduit between that group and the incoming Viceroy. Henceforth, the object of this paper is to provide examples of various aspects of Arwy's Ireland. His portrayal of the new English interest's gratitude and reliance on Ormond for the protection of their estates, his presentation of the Irish Parliament from 1661 to 66 as a loyal, reasonable body compatible with the government and with whom the king, the king could do government, and his role as manager of parliamentary affairs concerning the ongoing land question. As previously stated, Ari was to wait on events and upon Ormond's grand arrival. Even before the Duke's assumption of office, Ari was appealing to Ormond on policy matters. God direct your grace, but I am sure your command shall be my rule. Throughout the 1660s, Ari uses correspondence with Ormond to build up an image of the new English interest in Ireland. As Dr. Bernard has again pithily uh, remarked, the vigour and fluency with which Ari advanced the opinion of the Irish Protestants were the only secure foundation for English rule in that island, establishing him as a foremost spokesman for that interest. Ari portrayed the new English interest as the most loyal demographic grouping within the kingdom, both ethnically and religiously. Rejoicing in the protection of Ormond, they owed, Ari wrote, an inestimable debt to the debt to the Duke for his work in the settlement of Ireland with the royal favour that was shown them. Ari depicted himself as the guiding force of this obliged interest that laid its service at Ormond's feet. In the tense atmosphere following the publication of the Gracious Declaration in November 1660, Ari wrote, All in this kingdom look upon your grace as their great patron, to whom they in a high degree own those hopes which His Majesty's gracious declaration has given them, and who will now change those hopes into certainties. Ari persuaded the new English in Ireland of their indebtedness to Ormond and of the advantages of loyalty under his government. This was his utmost endeavour. He told Ormond that all those I converse with of them, these new English, are as ambitious to deserve your obligations as they own themselves happy in receiving them. Ari made it clear that he was not representing the old English. These new English of Ari's were those whose land holdings in Ireland rested on the authority of the former Cromwellian government and needed, following the restoration, a new source of legitimacy. Meanwhile, Peter Walsh, the Franciscan proponent of the 1661 remonstrance of Catholic loyalty to the king, claimed that the majority of Irish Catholics had been the passionate sticklers of Ormond, hoping that the Duke would act as the saviour to his brethren, Catholic Ireland. Ari countered this in his pamphlet, the new, sorry, the Irish Catholics, the Irish colours displayed. We are bold to claim and challenge you for ours. Despite Walsh's trust in his political patron, there was much suspicion among Irish Catholics when it came to Ormond, and Ari was more than ready to take advantage of it. 
Ormond had on one hand a sense of duty and a willingness to assist deserving Irish Catholics. I'm not afraid to say that I'm sorry for them, he wrote, nor that anybody should conclude from thence that I would help them if I could. However, in January 1662, a letter that Ormond had written to Orrery displaying his favour of Protestants in Ireland was widely distributed and was the talk town of the Irish in London. As was his duty, Orrery sent copies of Ormond's letters to some eminent Protestants to keep up the hopes and confirm the good affections of Ormond of all of them. By either designs, wickedness or carelessness of some of my friends, as Orrery wrote, or the subtlety of some papists, the letters came into the hands of Irish Catholics in London and created a storm. It brought out the distrust of Ormond that was brewing among old, old English and Irish Catholics. Sir James Shane told Orrery that the Irish rank him, Ormond, and all of his relatives in the number of our greatest enemies, and also reported a sure benefit of this incident. He wrote, This will turn very much to his grace's advantage in many respects, as I am sure you designed it, for it hath so increased the affections of all the English and Protestants unto him. Orrery, pleading no wrongdoing, put the fiasco down to the arts and faults of Catholic schemes, and asserted that the papists should have a copy of it was more than ever I intended, here I cannot yet learn how they got it. Sheen informed Ari that Ormond had read the papers in London attentively, but remained silent. The Parliament of 1661-66 was another arena in which Ari's fashioning of the new English and Protestant interests of Ireland is evident. Ari was active in the shaping and management of the Parliament and its pastoral legislation. He effectively managed the elections with Mount Rath, their networks dominating the commons, a body now exclusively Protestant. Ori saw oath swearing as paramount to the constitution, loyalty and safety of the Parliament. He expounded the significance of the oath of supremacy for MPs to Sir Edward Nicholas. The administration of the oath to the commons was, in, our, in effect, our foundation stone in keeping the Parliament free from Catholic and dissenting Protestant membership. It was Ari's hope that the Commons' inclinations be made very clear in published declarations illustrating what true sons of the Church they are and how far they will be from tolerating any sex. In this, Ari found success and sent copies of the Declaration for London to see they are no fanatics as many of the Irish report them to be. The Declaration required due obedience to the said ecclesiastical government and to conform themselves to the said Book of Common Prayer and the practice thereof as the only public form of serving God established and allowed to be in this realm. Ari was also instrumental in other displays of the Parliament's compatibility with the restored structures of power and of the looming arrival of Ormond. The Lord's Justice had been appointed to choose as Speaker of the Lords, and Ari strongly suggested the Lord Primate, Archbishop Bramall. This assignment served the purposes of displaying the government's policy of favouring the Church and demonstrating the conformist nature of Parliament. Notwithstanding the evident divisions that he himself described in both houses, Ari represented a self-important image of his role in managing Parliament and its business. He confidently asserted that he could get anything in the House of Commons past that the King likes. In his dealing with Parliament in relation to the land settlements, Ari strove to pacify anxieties of MPs and to hasten the passing of the bills of settlement. Donald Diglin described Ari as the most effective spokesman and champion of the Protestant interest in his labours for the land settlement. It is certain that this is how Ari himself wished it to be seen, 
indispensable agent both for the king's interests and for those new English to whom Charles II owed his Irish kingdom. The land settlement was to be a compromise. Despite Charles II's desire to reward loyal old Irish and old English Protestants, he was bound to maintain the Cromwellian settlers in the recent land acquisitions as an affair of policy rather than of justice. The Gracious Declaration satisfied and confirmed the interests of the adventurers and soldiers of Ireland in their gains and was a robust assurance to Irish MPs. I retold Sir Edward Nicholas of his endeavours to maintain the form of the Declaration as far as possible, for there, in the House of Commons, they only fear that if a breach be made once in the Declaration, uh, there may be many more made. Ari presented himself as above these petty fears of the Commons men and mindful of the need for some accommodation of Catholics in the settlement, as was the King's preference. Though Ari informed Ormond that he could not find any notable man who did not see his estates newly acquired as in great hazard, he portrayed these men as patient and submissive. It was presumably Ari's own assurances and Ormond's utmost endeavours for them that the Earl wished to convey as the stabilising element within Protestant Ireland. The period of the sitting of the Court of Claims was a particularly tense time for apprehensive Protestants. Ari, claiming to know something of the temper of the English in Ireland, commented that he found the generality of, the, of this temper discontented at the late proceedings of the commissioners of the Court of Claims. Though fear of the pro-Catholic tendencies of this court of claims, seen as a laxity to perceived rebels, uh, though it abounded, Ari continually reassured Protestants of the intentions of Ormond and the King. For those who did not see the benefits of these guarantees, Ari felt it his duty to intervene and persuade those of the new English interest of their safety under Ormond's care and of the, inev- and of the inevitable triumph of a settlement that would assure the dominance of Protestant Ireland. Meeting with some gentlemen of good interest in their countries in March 1664, Ari read them some of Ormond's most recent letters to calm their minds with the reassurances of Ormond's care for their interests and determination for a good settlement. As he endlessly reminded Ormond, it is both my delight and my duty to lay hold of all opportunities which may convince the sober English how much they are in your grace's care and how much they owe for your appearing for them. It was these assurances that Ari built his image of the group's political loyalties, summed up in the following assertion to Ormond in March 1663. I have considered, and so consider, the true Protestants of Ireland the best interest his majesty has in this kingdom, and even a good as one as he has in his three kingdoms. Following his work on the Bill of Settlement, or perhaps even as early as late 1661, Ari's influence waned, raising interesting questions. How much of Ari's assessment of post-restoration Ireland was just that, his own view, in substantial spin? As it seemed that Ari was circumvented in his largely regional Munster role following Ormond's arrival, was the supposed leadership of the new English interest worth all his boasting? Ari worked hard to protect his priorities throughout his own tumultuous times and as an enlightening an often amusing contact for us in the mid-17th century. Thank you.